So the Americans in uh, South Vietnam had been involved in training the South Vietnamese from really the time that the first American advisors went in there. Uh, but for a long time, the focus was on the regular South Vietnamese armed forces. And that was true until the 1968 Tet Offensive. That's Dr. Eric Villard, a Vietnam War specialist at the U.S. Army Center of Military History at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C., and a longtime friend of the podcast. And one of the things Ted had done is to really underscore the fact that the South Vietnamese territorial soldiers, the ones who did security in the countryside, uh, were really not well-trained, not well-equipped. And if the South Vietnamese are ever going to stand up mostly on their two feet and handle all aspects of the war, uh, this was a very important one. So, it's, you know, time had come to help with these uh, rural security forces. You probably already know that U.S. military advisors worked side by side with the South Vietnamese military during the war, but not a lot of people are aware of these mobile advisory training or MAT teams who worked with the regional forces and popular forces known as Rough Puffs from 1968 to about 1971 or 72. Advising and training the Rough Puffs was one of the keys to eventually being able to hand the war over to the South Vietnamese, as these were the units responsible for security at the village and hamlet level. The VC came into the villages. I mean, they had no respect for women or children or older individuals or anything. I mean, they, they often killed someone when they came to visit and uh, anything we could do to keep that from happening, the people appreciated that. That's Bob Blair, a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who led MAT Team 44, based in Four Corps, in 1971. It was interesting and it was, it was rewarding to be out there. It was not, you know, the safest job in Vietnam, but it was a good job and I, I'm glad that I did that. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. This is episode 61, Advising the Rough Puffs. Lieutenant Colonel Bob Blair, U.S. Army retired, was a MAT team leader in four corps in 1971. We talked in a meeting room at the public library in Camdenton, Missouri, back in September. I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, I uh, uh, graduated from high school there and uh, went to college at the, the what's now Missouri State University for a couple of years, and I took ROTC and enjoyed ROTC and didn't enjoy the rest of my uh, studies there. And uh, I thought I would just go ahead and join the Army and maybe go to officer candidate school. And so I joined the Army on the 12th of uh, April, 1966, and uh, went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for basic training. And then from Fort Leonard Wood, I went to Fort Sill, 
Oklahoma for uh, what they called advanced individual training, which in my case I went to a specialized advanced individual training called OCS Prep, and I had already been selected for officer candidate school at that point, and uh, then went to. So you must not have been too bad a student. Uh, I, I had I was good in math. Okay. I was good in math, so right. so that made me a, a candidate for the artillery, mm-hmm. and so I went to artillery officer candidate school at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and which, uh, by the way, is one of the best things I ever did. What made it so enriching it, for you? It, it showed me how to approach my studies and study properly and, and gave me a, a grounding in, in what is important in, in life and, uh, and showed me a little bit of attention to detail. Well, not a little bit, a whole lot of attention to detail. And um, uh, taught me about... Uh, interacting with uh, people there. Well, that all became very important later because you, you became a surgeon. It, it, it did, and, and I, still, I still think of uh, Officer Candidate School, uh, you it's know, little, little things from Officer Candidate School every day. Yeah. April of 67, I graduated from Officer Candidate School. Okay, and where'd you go then? I, I stayed at Fort Sill for another um, period of time, um, a few months, uh, and I, I was a battery officer, a training officer, in a, in a training battery for cannoneers. And uh, we trained young enlisted folks to, to become cannoneers in the artillery. And um, then um, sometime in that time period, the tensions grew pretty tight in, um, in, um, in Korea. And uh, it culminated later on in the capture of the, of the Pueblo, as you can remember. And instead of my orders for Vietnam being uh, coming to fruition, uh, they canceled almost all of my classes' uh, orders, and we all went to Korea for a year, or 13 months. And um, I served as an artillery officer in Korea for 13 months, and then went uh, uh, from Korea to uh, Germany for another 15 months. Uh, in as a as a staff officer at Division Artillery of the Third uh, Armored Division, uh, the assistant operations officer there, and then uh, went from there to um, to Special Warfare Center at uh, Fort Bragg, and at, at, that was uh, a course called the Matacords course, and it was a it was a course for advisors. Uh, half the course was um, was uh, customs and courtesies and that sort of thing for uh, about Vietnam, you know, history of Vietnam and and uh, all sorts of things about what we were what we were preparing for, and then the afternoons all turned into um, Vietnamese language uh, study. So we uh, we had uh, had uh, Vietnamese instructors, and we learned language in the afternoon. And then from there, I went to uh, airborne school, jump school at Fort Benning for, for uh, three or four weeks. And then from there, went to Fort Bliss, Texas to the Defense Language Institute uh, Southwest and had another, I think maybe two or three months of, uh, of language uh, study in Vietnamese there. And uh, that's great because that, uh, I finished that in like, uh, I guess, uh, December of 1970 or, or January of 1971, and I can't remember three words of Vietnamese today. So, <laughs> but uh, 
anyway, it, so we were well prepared, the guys that went through my courses there, the Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg and then the, then the uh, Defense Language Institute at Fort Bliss. We were well prepared to become advisors. Now, had they, had they put you through those courses with the aim of making you an advisor? Or yes. was it the other way around? No, no it, we were pre-selected as, as advisors for some So reason. you knew you were going to Vietnam? I, I knew I was going to Vietnam, and I knew that I was going to be an advisor. Okay. Uh, while I was in Germany, I, did get, I got orders for uh, Vietnam. Okay. And on the orders, it, it had my schools that I was going to go to before I arrived. So it was pretty clear what, what was... Uh, what was uh, on the road ahead. So the Americans in uh, South Vietnam had been involved in training the South Vietnamese from you know a very early age, from really the time that 55 or so, the first American advisors went in there. Uh, but for a long time, the focus was on the regular South Vietnamese armed forces. And that was true until uh, about 1968. And what happens, what changes, because the MAP program was started in uh, March of 68, uh, a couple things led to its creation. First off, you had now a very uh, robust, fleshed out MACV advisory program for all the South Vietnamese units. So they were pretty well covered, right? So we had some extra bandwidth. Uh, the second thing is, this is, of course, coming right in the heels of the 1968 Tet Offensive. And one of the things Ted had done is to really underscore the fact that uh, the South Vietnamese territorial soldiers, the ones who did security in the countryside, uh, were really not well-trained, not well-equipped. And when Ted happened, the government lost control of huge parts of the countryside, at least temporarily. So the recognition was, OK, we really got to bear down and help these other folks. And uh, the third thing was, in this period, this is, of course, you know, March 68, this is still well over a year before the United States made a decision to start pulling out, but there was always a recognition that, you know, we, the U.S. won't be here forever. And if the South Vietnamese are ever going to basically, you know, stand up mostly on their two feet and handle all aspects of the war, uh, this was a very important one. So, it's, you know, time had come to help with these uh, rural security forces. So uh, that's why they created these teams. Generally speaking, it would be two officers, you know, two junior officers, three enlisted men and a South Vietnamese interpreter. So these are, you know, small teams, uh, six-person teams. And the focus of these teams was on what they called the regional and popular forces. These were the South Vietnamese troops who, by and large, were responsible for security in the countryside. They would be, you know, operating mostly as companies, platoons, so small units at the village and hamlet level. And so these were the folks who actually bore the brunt of the guerrilla war uh, and, and were chiefly responsible for maintaining security of the population. You know, the South Vietnamese regular armed forces played a role there well, but they were more focused on the big uh, NVA and VC units. So it's these local guys, these territorial soldiers, as they called them, that needed the help. So that's why they created these MAT teams, to go out and live and work with these regional and popular forces, 
force of soldiers. They need to give them um, training on weapons, tactics. Now you, I mean, by then, right, and we're talking about this is after Tet, right? This yes. is after the kind of turning of the tide of American public right. sentiment. And most the of the Viet, or most of the American units were uh, drawing down or or some of them had actually gone by then, I believe. I, I'd have to look at the history, but uh, uh, there, w there weren't many Americans there, mm. at least. And then where I was in the Delta, uh, there weren't any Americans other than aviation and some hospital and uh, things like that, yeah, so logistics you were in types. Four Corps. Four Corps, yeah. yes. I was a captain at that time, and, and I had uh, been a staff officer at division level and had, you know, I, I'd been around the Army a little bit at that time. Um, I arrived in Vietnam sometime in January of 1971 and uh, processed in at, uh, uh, at uh, Tonsonut, arrived in Saigon, and uh, you know, have this typical story that everybody has when they open the door of the airplane, how the, the heat hits you like a, like a furnace, like a blast furnace. And uh, I don't remember the smells that a lot of guys talk about, but uh, I do remember the heat. And uh, we stayed in Saigon uh, processing in uh, for maybe a week or so, maybe a little bit less than a week. And then they sent us to another, believe it or not, another advisor course for about two weeks uh, at uh, a place called Xeon. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that uh, course, they actually took us out and showed us MAT teams in the field. Uh, they uh, worked some more on our language skills and uh, talked about what we might be doing, where we were going. And so it was a big group. And then from there, we split out and went to the different uh, cores that we were going to be deployed to and started processing in there. While I was there, I met, uh, I mentioned Chris Morbitzer, my, my good friend Chris, uh, who uh, is in fact on the wall. And uh, Chris uh, was a, also a MAT team uh, senior advisor, team leader. and. Uh, Chris uh, wound up uh, uh, falling victim to a, some sort of a booby trap and, uh, and died in action there. Was he the first person you knew personally who was killed in action? No, I had known of other people that I had known, but, but he was the first real friend that I had that, that had died in action. Do you recall anything changing for you when you heard that news? Well, I just well, I had already figured out uh, this. This is once you get out in the field. I mean, you realize it only only after the first time that that you're in in combat, uh, you realize that you you know there's not much you can do other than rely on your training out there. And if they get you, they get you, and just do your best not to allow that to happen by relying on the, the training and and being careful and and trying to do your mission and, and keep going. And so the fact that he died impacted me very deeply, and it still does today, but it, I don't think it changed anything that I did because I was still as careful at, at that point. The nickname was Rough Puff, you know, RFPF, Rough Puffs. Uh, their reputation wasn't great, 
uh, partly because they hadn't been well trained, they weren't well armed, um, often not well supported. But you know, by '68, um, as they got more support, more training, and um, probably most importantly, they traded in their old World War II weapons for like M16s. So by 68, these rough buffs, you know, were approaching this sort of equipment and training of the South Vietnamese Armed Forces. So they were actually able to do a lot more. So again, when the MAT teams go in, they're not just a bunch of sad sacks. I mean, these are people who really want to, you know, get the job done and they start to have the equipment to do it. And so that is their focus. By the time you got there in 71, the MAT teams had been around for a few years and presumably they'd kind of gotten their, their way of working, their way of operating kind of dialed in. Yeah. Um, uh, team MAT 44, which was the team that I was eventually sent to, was um, formed in 1968 and they had four guys or five guys at that time on the team. Uh, uh, Captain Ben Yeomans was uh, was the team leader at that time, and then Tom. Uh, there was a, a, a staff sar- or a, a, a sergeant first class Smith was a medic uh, on the team, and uh, uh, there were uh, there were a few other guys. Also, a lieutenant Jim Van Treese was uh, the executive officer of the team at that point, and and a couple other fellows that I just don't have their names. And uh, that team was on Fuquoc Island in the same province, Kinyang Province, which is the west coast of Vietnam, if you look at it on a map. And um, they were on Fuquoc Island, and later on the team moved back onto the mainland. And by the time I joined it, we were in a in a, a Kinan Province or, or Kinan District, I should say, of Kinyang uh, Province. <clears throat> and it was on the uh, on a canal called the Kangao Canal. Our team was, and we were we were in a little uh, uh, triangular shaped uh, bermed uh, outpost uh, with thirty uh, popular forces uh, soldiers. And we had uh, on my team we had myself. We had Stu Ferguson was my executive officer. Uh, Bill Morgan was the uh, captain that. Uh, I had taken over the team from, and he had he stayed for a week or so while after I got there. Um, uh, we had uh, Sergeant Sam Yurdy, who was a, a light weapons infantry advisor, uh, Sergeant D.D. Dalton, who was a, a heavy weapons infantry advisor, and then I had uh, Doc Smith, and I don't know Doc's first name, but he was our, our senior medic. He was a SFC medic. And uh, then we had uh, an interpreter. Uh, Mr. Chi, who uh, helped us with uh, with our language skills, if we needed it, even yeah. even though we had extensive language skills, uh, uh, which reminds me of a story. I was sitting on the sandbag one evening talking to one of my counterparts, and uh, he said, "Dai Wei, which is captain." He said, "Dai Wei, you speak uh, you speak Vietnamese uh, like a Saigon school teacher." And it turns out, you know, if you think back on it, those are the people that taught us. They brought over Saigon school teachers to, to teach the Americans uh, Vietnamese. And uh, right. so by the time I was there, I was uh, pretty countrified in my Vietnamese, I think, uh, by the time I'd been out there for a while. Mm. Considering that MAT-44 had been in place for a few years, uh, how did you find the, 
the the condition of the the popular um, forces I, soldiers. I, that you I was never um, I was never disappointed in 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 their warrior capabilities. Uh, the the guys uh, they never ran. They never they stood and fought. They were there ready to go anytime, all the time. Um, they were ready to die for us. As a matter of fact, they didn't. I, I think maybe it was like they felt like they might lose face if they lost one of their Americans. So um, we we were pretty well protected as well. If uh, we we would have been the last ones to to you know buy it if uh, if uh, something had happened. Mm -hmm. And I mean I, things like that did happen. A friend of mine who's a, actually a Retired dentist in Springfield, Missouri, Kurt Inman. He uh, he was a mad officer and uh, was overrun. Wound up going naked into the into the canal with his rifle only and spend the night and waiting to get picked up the next day uh, and uh, lost most of his team. So it happened. And on on April 24th, uh, uh, 1971, it happened to my team, except we didn't get overrun and because of. Um, some people you're familiar with, uh, the Sea Wolves uh, came and helped us out. Another group of uh, Navy uh, uh, aircraft called Black Ponies, which were the OV-10s with uh, a ton of armament on them, came and helped us out. And uh, I think a, uh, uh, another Air Force gunship helped us out as well. So it was, uh, it was, it was an exciting evening, but nothing happened uh, yeah, really bad to us. We'll be back with more after a short break. On Veterans Day 1996, VVMF unveiled an exact replica of the wall that could be packed into an 18-wheeler and hauled to cities and towns all across America. Since then, the wall that heals has been displayed in nearly 700 communities throughout the nation, spreading the healing legacy of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to millions of visitors. If you want to know more about this traveling exhibit and the impact it can have on a community, check out episode 15 of this podcast. It's one of my favorites. The wall that heals and the mobile education center that travels with it will be in Caldwell, Ohio, October 19 through 22, and Upper Providence Township, Pennsylvania, October 26 through 29. To see the rest of this year's tour schedule and to learn how you can bring the wall that heals to your town, visit vvmf.org. Hello, I'm Gary Sinise. Nearly 3 million Americans served in Vietnam and more than 58,000 have their names inscribed on the wall. Those that pay the ultimate price in service to America. Some might ask why the Vietnam War still matters. It matters because more than 58,000 lives were cut short and their families forever changed. It matters because we should never forget how Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. A lesson learned so that our current generation of veterans are treated with respect. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund the organization that built the wall works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. I'm asking you to help keep the promise the wall was built on. Never forget. 
Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. The Registry is an online community created by VVMF that connects veterans of the Vietnam War era with each other. By signing up for the Registry, you can upload and share stories and images, connect with others who served during the Vietnam era, and connect your service with people you knew whose names are now on the wall. Join the community and preserve your legacy or a family member's by signing up today at vvmf.org slash registry. I'm sure that in that situation, there's no such thing as a typical day, but to the degree that you can, can you just sort of talk about the, the, the day-to-day work? you know, absent any major yeah. crisis? Uh, you know, we'd get up in the morning and, uh, and uh, uh, probably go down, down to the village, which was about 200 yards down the canal, uh, and meet with the village chief and find out if there was anything we could do for him that day. Um, uh, usually we had a contingent. We'd had, we had some of the Americans. We also always uh, left uh, Americans back at our outpost as well. But um, uh, myself as a senior advisor, almost always went down and talked with the village chief that, uh, every morning. And, um, you know, we had different projects going on. We had, a, we had a dispensary that we were trying to build for them or help them build. Uh, we had um, a little school house that we helped them with, and uh, we brought in uh, medical teams uh, of American medical teams, dental teams, to come in and, and treat the, the folks in the village and uh, try to take care of their, their needs. Um, uh, we worked on some, some sewer-type uh, uh, projects that they had, that they had uh, undertaken there. Uh, we had people from the uh, Department of Agriculture that came down and helped them with different types of rice. And, and we were kind of the liaison for all that sort of thing. Mm. So, you know, by, by lunch, uh, you know, we usually had shake it, uh, shaking hands with uh, most of the villagers in the, in the uh, village uh, square down there. And um, they usually took a two-hour siesta uh, for lunch and then... Uh, we'd come back and see if there was anything else we could do, and then we'd go back and maybe take a nap for a little while and then get ready for, to go out on an ambush that evening if we had an ambush planned. And that was kind of our day, and, and we went on night ambushes. We'd usually move out uh, before before dark, move to a point and kind of sit down and wait until dark, and then move out to where our ambush site was going to be located. And this is you advising the the Vietnamese troops. Yes, and sometimes in the afternoon we would we would have classes on on weapons, you know, of one sort or the other. And non commissioned officers would teach a class, or or we talk about uh, very very basic small unit tactics, you know, uh, movement and and uh, maneuver and mm-hmm. fire fire and maneuver and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the uh, the ambushes, not every night, but very often, we'd go out on an ambush. Um, there may be a, may have been a project uh, 
uh, in another hamlet in the village, and the, the hamlets were, I guess, maybe like townships uh, would be the best way to describe those. And some days we'd uh, get in a, a sampan, we'd just ask some farmer to take us to a different hamlet because there were no roads in, in the Delta at that time, at least where we were, down in Kenyang province. Uh, everything was, uh, every bit of commerce moved on the canal, every bit of, uh, every bit of military moved on the canal. If, if it wasn't American, then it could fly. So all the, all the VC moved by canal, all the NVA moved by canal, all their supplies. All moved. their supplies moved by canal down there because there wasn't any walking in that, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of mangrove swamp and and uh, rice paddies. And that was about all there was down there. What were some of the uh, the challenges or obstacles? Uh, that might have made the work of the the mobile advisory teams uh, more difficult? Well, in some respects, uh, they they shared some of the same challenges and frustrations as the MACV advisory teams, because South Vietnam was a sovereign country, right? These American advisors were advisors. They had no operational control. They can't tell their counterparts to do this or do that. They can suggest... And if the relationship is good, then that works out pretty well. But they have to be very careful to not to, you know, overstep boundaries. How did the role of MAT teams or the contribution or expectations mm-hmm. of MAT teams change uh, when, you know, when we started talking about Vietnamization? So, again, with the MAT program got going, uh, in early 68 they formed about 353 of these teams and uh eventually they i think reached a maximum number of like 487 again these are all across the country you know and particularly in rural areas um but by the time let's say early 71 uh, Vietnamization is underway. The U.S. combat forces are coming home. The drawdown is beginning. And so at a certain point, uh, those MAT teams also have to be um, scaled back. So the MATs really 68, 69, and 70, those are their big years where they're just like going hell for leather to make a difference. Because if you couldn't get those rough, pup, rough puffs up to speed, nothing else would work. Right. That was a critical element. And they did a good job. They they did make a difference. The M in MAT stands for mobile. Mobile advisory training team. So can you talk a little bit about the mobile part of that? Well, the mobile meant that at any uh, point in time, we we could... uh, be uh, picked up and moved to a different platoon, let's say, of, of, uh, of popular force or, or company of uh, regional forces uh, soldiers and help them out. And while I was with MAT-44, I was never moved. We were in one position the whole time. You mentioned that uh, by the time you got there, uh, we were starting to, to pull some, some troops out of Vietnam. Yes. Had the 
I don't remember when the term Vietnamization came up. Had it had it come up? Had you heard that term when you got <clears throat> there? Yes, we, we heard that term, uh, Vietnamization, and that was part of the the effort that we were involved in is to try to get people, try to get their people up to the up to snuff, and and I but I do believe, in my opinion, that they that the soldiers, the South Vietnamese soldiers, the the uh, regional forces, the popular forces, at le- to that level at least, were were pretty good soldiers at that point, and uh, the stories of them running at the first sound of a battle, I, you know, I just never saw anything like that. They were always they were always great warriors, but. I think that they relied on the on the technology and the and the assets that the U.S. had. And once that was pulled, once the air was pulled, once the uh, you know naval gunfire was pulled, um, then it was it was going to be the, the outcome that happened. You know, I never thought about that. I mean, here you are advising <clears throat> them based on a certain set of circumstances, right? You're trying to get them up to the task of fighting it without you. But you're you're advising them and, and training them in a circumstance that's going to completely change when you pull all your guns out. That's exactly right. You know, we had the Vietnamese Air Force, and, and I flew with many. Uh, we called them VNAF, Vietnamese Air Force pilots, in uh, in Hueys, and and uh, they were all top notch. I never had never had a problem with with the uh, with the helicopters, and they were all. <clears throat> Uh, intrepid enough to do what we needed them to do. Uh, nobody balked at uh, at going in where we needed them to go in, or doing any any mission that we asked them. But um, once we pulled all the support, then I, I I think it was the writing was on the wall at that point. I guess I'm surprised that in 1971, after having fought that fight for, I mean, when did they start fighting each other? 56, 57? Right, right. And prior to that, having fought the French? Yes. That these guys needed advisors. I mean, they were well battle-hardened so by then. They, they were, and, and that's, my soldiers were great soldiers. I, you know, there was a, there was a, the platoon leader was Mr. Duke. And Mr. Duke would stand up and he would walk around in the in the heaviest fire and and never blink an eye and would be directing fire and directing maneuver and and uh, never never gave it a second thought. He was a he was a fine soldier. His drinking habits, on the other hand, maybe not so much, but uh, but he was a great soldier. Did you advise him on that? I advised him don't don't do that <laughs> as much. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I was here the old adage, you know, when I left, we were winning, and and it seemed like that to me, because we had made some real friends of the Vietnamese in in our area, and if if the uh, uh, let's say the tax collectors or the uh, recruiting guys for the for the Viet Cong were were going to show up in our village. Uh, Anytime soon, we got we knew about this, and and that hence the ambushes that we were able to to set up, and uh, and lots of times we, they were successful. But when we saw the what happened when those people, you know, the VC came into the villages, I mean, they had no 
no respect for, you know, women or children or older individuals or anything. I mean, they, they often killed someone when they came to visit. And uh, anything we could do uh, to, make, to keep that from happening, the people appreciated that. And they appreciated that we were trying to help them with rice, although, you know, they'd been cultivating rice for like 10,000 years or something, you know, or something, I, I don't know. But it, uh, <clears throat> they, I, I think they really did appreciate what we were doing. It, it seemed like uh, we never had any, any issues, and they were all very friendly, at least as far as we could tell. And, you know, actually, uh, the longer I was out there, the more you could tell that because you got more familiar with the way the language was and the way the, the nuances of, uh, of uh, you know, communication were. It just, uh, it just worked out. And, of course, we had the interpreter that could tell us anything that was technical in nature or anything like that. But... Uh, uh, it was it was interesting and it was it was uh, it was rewarding in my opinion. It was rewarding to be out there. It was it was not you know the safest job in Vietnam, but but it, it was it was a good job, and I, I'm glad that I did that. By early '71, writings on the wall. The U.S. is beginning to really draw down. Um, and so what happens is the South Vietnamese themselves take over. Uh, so South Vietnamese regular forces by that point, you know, had many, many years of training with the Americans and started their own MAT teams, which is which was the point all along. I mean, you, you want that. Yeah. That would be preferable. I mean, the MAT teams are only a temporary measure. So, you know, by the end of 71, the MAT teams are down to about 66. So 71, you know, they go from, from you know, the high point and then really start drawing down quickly as the South Vietnamese take over, which is, again, which was always the point. And um, it was very sad. I was back in school in 1975 when, uh, when Saigon fell. But it, it was, again, it was predictable. Other than maybe not being surprised, did you have any other reaction? I was, I was sad. I was sad, and I, and I was worried about the people that we knew there. You know, that that had worked with us. We had. Um, both at the, in the MAT team, you know, all the, all the PF soldiers, they had their wives and their kids at that little outpost. And I just wondered what, what happened with that, that outpost. Did they just walk in and say, all oh, you guys are now VC or what, what, what happened there? We, I don't know. And, uh, you know, the, the MAT teams, I think were a very important part of, of the, of that time frame that we we were there in from 68 through 74 whenever they whenever they deactivated all the mat teams it may have been 73 that they finished them up but you know there were just a lot of guys that had served in other units american units that wound up on mat teams or guys like me that got specifically trained to go on mat teams and 
there were just a lot of quality people that did that, and and that um, uh, some of them, obviously, like Chris uh, Morbitzer, didn't make it back, and uh, and um, I uh, I always uh, think of uh, all the guys that served on that teams, and and I knew uh, from when I came back from Vietnam, I went to the to the uh, officer advanced course at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in the artillery, and just there were probably three or four of us that had been advisors, you know, MAT team advisors. And we were like in a different world than, than the other guys that had served in American units uh, uh, when they were in Vietnam. You know, it was just like, it was like almost speaking a different language. But I do credit that year of study there at Fort Sill with not ever having any nightmares or any, any issues as far as uh, uh, what guys have because every day we had multiple coffee breaks to talk to talk war stories and and to to help to to settle all that um, unfortunately none of the guys from Matt 44 are still alive except for myself Ben Yeomans and Tom McLaughlin uh, they've all passed uh, but other than the one you mentioned uh, Chris Chris Morbitzer. The rest of them came home from Vietnam. As far as I know. I don't know of anyone that on the map, ones that you knew. Uh, exactly. On, on Map 44, I don't know of any casualties, of any, you know, anybody losing their life on Map 44. Mm. Now, I, I know that other Matt teams weren't nearly as lucky as we were. And even though, even though we had, you know, several engagements with VC and maybe even North Vietnamese regulars, uh, we, we just were always in the right place at the right time and had the right support from, again, your Sea Wolves or the Black Ponies or, or even uh, sometimes Army aircraft or, or Air Force uh, F-4s sometimes uh, would, would come in and help us out. Um, we just were always always had the right folks at the right time at the right place and it just worked out for us mm -hmm. and I wish it could have worked out for a lot of other people that way same way but it didn't I do think it's probably one of the less well-known aspects of the war and I think uh, if people heard of it it'd probably be very easy to confuse them with the MACV advisory teams it's an interesting aspect of the war and, and one that is still with us. Uh, the United States has always had a advisory element to it. We do now, helping with, say, the Ukrainians, you know, all the other folks that were helping. Of course, look at Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, they look back to Vietnam to try to learn some of those lessons. One of those lessons, of course, is that there's only so much you can do and so this is one of the reasons I think we should uh, remember the MAP teams and other folks who did that in Vietnam. These days you can find Bob Blair working as an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Rolla, Missouri. We're grateful to him for sharing his story and to my Seawolf buddy, Tex Morgan, for making the introduction. And special thanks to Dr. Eric Villard, who provides invaluable historical context for so many of the stories we tell here on Echoes. 
Believe it or not, you can't always take Wikipedia at face value, and Eric has kept me from stepping in it more than once. His book, Combat Operations, Staying the Course, October 1967 to September 1968, is available at Amazon and at history.army.mil. His follow-up to that book will be coming out next spring. Bob's friend, Captain Chris Morbitzer, was killed in action on August 19, 1971. He's memorialized on the wall at panel 3W, line 134. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. See you then.